Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi and welcome to this episode of Cross Section. I'm Jo Evans and I'm recording today's episode from my really quite cold flat because I'm refusing to put on the heating. I'm at the Evangelical Alliance's offices at King's Cross in London. And I'm hanging out. And your name's Danny Webster. He is is Danny Webster. He's so famous he doesn't need to introduce himself. (laughs) People will just recognise his voice at this point. The dulcet tones of Danny Webster. And I'm Peter Linus in Northern Ireland, as I often am. Sunny Northern Ireland today, it should be said as well. Oh, showing off. So welcome to Cross Section. Once in a while, we do a special episode. And this happens to be a particularly special episode. Not only in this episode will we be focusing on the persecuted church, so we're going to have that particular focus today, in light of the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church that is coming up this Sunday. The date this Sunday is the 6th, the 6th of November this Sunday. There will be a link to the webinar that you can join. I'm going to put that in the description for today's episode. But also this episode is special because we are going to be joined by our very first live guests. So the International Day of Prayer, IDOP, is hosted by the Evangelical Alliance, and it's a joint webinar with Open Doors, Release International and CSW. Where and, and on the webinar, you'll have the opportunity to hear about the latest news and testimonies from Christian survivors of persecution in China, Cuba and Iraq. And we are being joined today from CSW, Anna Lee Stengel, their head of advocacy, and another, another member of the team, Sarah, who for security purposes, you won't, you won't be able to see, and we're not going to use her real name. As in, Sarah is not her real name. I've not just accidentally told you her real name. Also, for regular listeners who have been missing the YouTube videos, you can actually watch today's episode so if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, feel free to pause and head over to YouTube. That's a lot of my voice. Before we get into today's episode, oh, <laughs> and yes, Peter is making fun of me because I'm, I, I look more like a, like a granddad than someone who's dressed for a political podcast. But anyway, thank you. Before we get into today's focus of the persecuted church, we didn't have an episode last week. And quite a lot's happened. So I just thought, uh, Peter, Danny, myself, we should do a a whiz round the political highlights, if you can call them that, of the last couple of weeks. Rishi's the new prime minister. Let's let's get your hot take on that, Peter Linus. Well, yeah, we we recorded on the day. Liz Truss was the last kind of full day she was going to be prime minister because of half term. Then the next morning we had to we had to add some sections in because things were changing so fast. And now it feels like a lifetime that Rishi's already been the prime minister, our first uh, non-white prime minister, our first prime minister, I think, to actually uh, actively pursue uh, a religion other than Christianity. We've had atheists, we've had nominals, um, but a Hindu prime minister, uh, we know, I think, relatively little about his beliefs, but there's certainly some interest in that uh, and somebody coming from a different faith background, but somebody also aware of faith because we've had such a different set of perspectives. And uh, yeah, so it's certainly been a really exciting week for politics. I actually think there's a number of articles being written about that, the kind of pluralism perspective. Uh, people of different faiths and people with a religious understanding uh, may well be at least as, if not more, sympathetic to those of faith than some previous prime ministers who've either been very dismissive or used it in very, uh, let's say, dubious ways. So I'm broadly encouraged by a start, but lots and lots of challenges ahead and lots of issues that we've already been talking about war in Ukraine, cost of living, uh, lots of things on a plate today. And I mean, the bank rates have just gone up today as well. So it is a fast changing, fast paced world out there. It certainly is. Danny, does the fact that we have, as as Peter mentioned, our first Hindi prime minister, representative of the fact that we have great religious freedom here in the UK? Well, I think it's a it's a representation that we do live in a plural society with uh, people with a variety of different religious beliefs. Uh, I'm not going to make any huge claims uh, for religious freedom because of the fact that Rishi Sunak uh, is a Hindu. And when he was chancellor, uh, uh, lit a candle on the steps of number 11 Downing Street for Diwali. But I think 
as Peter says, it is an interesting and possibly hopeful step that that there is a understanding of how different people practice their faiths and the fact that people don't practice their faith in the same way and that that will work out differently. And in a plural society, we should make space for people to practice their faith, how they practice their faith. So I think it's, a, it's, it's an interesting indicator. And I think it's something that we will want to pursue and we will want to encourage him as prime minister to be someone who does stand up for religious freedom. Yeah, great. Thank you. I guess time will tell. So that was stop one on our highlights tour. Stop two, we're going to be talking about the freedom of religion and belief today, religion or belief today, a human right. And probably in that conversation, we're going to be critical of other countries not honouring that human right. So do you think, uh, Danny, let's go back to you. Do you think the UK is failing to honour human rights right now in the stories that we're seeing coming out of the South Coast? Well, obviously, the stories around uh, migration and people crossing the channel in small boats has it's dominated the UK news this week. I think it cuts to the heart of human rights because human rights are built on treating people with dignity and recognising uh, that everyone should have dignity. And actually, the original human rights charters uh, came out of a lot of Christian values and Christian beliefs that we are all created in the image of God and that we should all be treated with dignity. And I think how we talk about immigration, how we think about immigration affects how we think about people. And, and I think without wanting to get into the politics of it, I think we just need to do a much better job of treating people humanely, of treating people with dignity and compassion and recognising the different circumstances, the different challenges. And I think what often happens in some of the conversation about immigration is, uh, well, we other people. Uh, we put people in a box that enables us to talk about them in a different way and therefore to possibly treat them uh, less well. And I think some of the circumstances that are coming to light, some of the questions about detention and housing, a lot of that stems from a sense that we end up othering people who we don't want necessarily to, to treat in the same way we would, we would want to be treated ourselves. And so I think that's how it does cut to questions of human rights. And I think it's really important for us to make sure that we are talking about human rights for everyone and that we are working to treat everyone in a way that respects those rights, that respects their dignity. And as Christians, I think we need to put a really high priority on valuing God's creation. Yeah, Suella Ravman's been in a lot of trouble this week for using the language of invasion. And there was a report this morning of a woman throwing a bottle, a message in a bottle out of Manston, the, the migrant centre in Kent. Peter, do you think, what? why do you think she used that word invasion? Do you think it was a, a slip of the tongue reveal of what she really thinks? Or do you think there was more kind of political savviness at play there. Well, I mean, Swella Bradman's a reasonable amount of controversy with her comments on the Rwandan flight and nothing would make her happier than that taking off. And we've also got to acknowledge there is polling and data around this. This plays to a certain um, part of the electorate. But we need to recognise and engage with why that is. But but I do, I mean, this drives the core fundamentals for us as evangelical ants. Do I know what she's thinking? No. What are we going to campaign about? And what are many Christians? Well, look, there were two things when the evangelical ants was founded in 1846. And I was intrigued. I didn't know this when I joined. But we said no to those who were engaged in slavery. Human dignity was critically important. But then the first appointment made by the evangelical ants was a religious liberties kind of commissioner who was sent initially to Turkey. A kind of ambassador was employed to go and fight for religious liberty everywhere. Because these two things are interlinked. There's a reason we're talking about them. You know, human rights, human dignity, uh, human freedoms are absolutely critical. And right at the core of that is the freedom to believe what you like for all religions. It's core to our understanding as evangelical alliance, but it's core to so many of our members like CSW. It's why we're doing this today and we're doing we're involved in these events. So that's where we get the tie in together. And that's what gets me excited and passionate about these stories um, and why I think it's absolutely critical that we do these and it's for all religions we've got to stress that again we absolutely come at this as passionate christians but core to our understanding is a god to give us the freedom to choose whether to follow him or not and give everybody that choice and so religious freedom will always be absolutely core to our dna 
That's a really good answer. And if I was if I was being really smooth on this podcast, I would link that straight into our religious persecution stories. However, I can't resist going to our last little highlight on our political roundup and to talk about I'm going to give you the question on today's Twitter poll and I'm going to see if either of you can guess why we've asked this question. So every week on EA UK News Twitter, we ask a question for our listeners to engage with. This week, the question was, who, uh, where's the question here? Who are you more influenced by, celebrities or politicians? Why, why do you think I'm asking that question? Buzz, buzz, isn't the Matt Hancock <laughs> question by any chance? Ding, 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 you're right. <laughs> Matt Hancock this week has said that he is going to be a contestant on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Unsurprisingly, he has lost the whip and essentially, from what I can understand, been kicked out of the Conservative Party. I cannot fathom why... I just I just think that it sums up everything that is going wrong in our British political system where where politicians see themselves as celebrities and see themselves as sort of these weird hybrid influencers. And he said that he's going into the jungle because that's where the people are. I assume he I means just, that the people are watching him, I, not that the people are actually in the jungle. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, I do appreciate that, but it's I'm going on to a celebrity show. I just can't. It just Musk and Twitter. I mean, where is the town square? James Corden got into trouble, I think, for stealing a joke from Ricky Gervais this week. But the basics of the joke is where's the town square? Where's the conversation having? Where are we having it? Sorry. And we're on freedom of religion, but linked to that is freedom of speech. Is Elon Musk the best offender? That's a really live question we might come back to. But it does go to where do you have the conversation? Is it on I'm a Celebrity? Nobody wants to watch Prime Minister's Question Time. They All these politicians are on Twitter and they all want their blue tick to verify who they are because they want to influence people. They are influencers. They are. Now, is it a good thing? I have lots of questions, but let's not be naive. He's probably right. He's going to get a bigger audience there than anywhere else. I, I really, I really appreciate that you're coming to Matt Hancock's defence. I cannot take it seriously. I'm sorry. <laughs> Danny, what were you going to say? Well, I think he will get a wider audience. That's certainly true. Uh, more people will hear what he has to say. When Nadine Dyes went on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, she shot to fame through that. Far more people knew about her because of that than because she was an MP. I think the problem, this is why he's been kicked out of the Conservative Party and lost the whip, is that, it's that an MP is elected uh, to represent their constituents in Parliament. And he is not doing that by going to the Australian rainforest. So if he wants to be a political influencer, he can be a political influencer. I don't think he can be an MP at the same time. I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, is essentially a popularity contest. And a huge, I believe a huge problem in our UK politics at the moment is that politicians are treating politics like a popularity contest, which is not. Well, it, anyway. Democracy has a certain element of that, Joe, yet you have to accept. Anyway, you need to move us on. Something more substantive. Come on. <laughs> I, yeah, maybe we'll, we'll come back. I'm sure there'll be many, you know, I don't know how closely you two follow I'm a Celebrity, but I'm sure we will come back to this after the first time that Matt Hancock is forced to eat cockroaches or whatever his first challenge is. Anyway, I want us to talk about the media representation of religious persecution. I'm going to come to our guests on this in just a minute. Peter, let's go back to you. How, how do you think the UK, or do you think the UK is doing a good enough job in representing what's going on in terms of religious persecution in the world, in our mainstream media? No. I mean, that's the short answer is, is no. These stories don't get the same level of traction we picked up one on this podcast back in june uh, a story of an incident in, in nigeria even the word an incident i mean this was a tragic incident this was uh, about 40 people being shot in a church in nigeria while they were worshiping and it actually so it got very little coverage full stop the coverage that began to get got interesting and it probably got more because of this because i mean the irish president was one person in particular who then began to connect this with climate change I mean, this was a, a terrorist attack carried out because these people were worshipping in a Christian church. He came up with some sort of strange idea that it was to do with climate change. Uh, and the bishop in Nigeria came out and said, uh, look, to make that connection is to treat the victims 
uh, is to mislead, is to rub salt in the in the wound of those who've been injured, who suffered an act of terrorism. So the strange thing was he tried to link it to climate change and tried to link it to uh, kind of food uh, issues. And it was clear cut religious discrimination, uh, religious persecution. So the British press finally picked up almost from that point of view because of this interesting angle. But the core story was almost getting lost in it. So we covered that at the time. And I think it's it's worth these are worth bearing in mind. So one, we don't do it generally. And there seems to be a particular nervousness about Christianity because it has been the dominant faith in the UK. We're now moving away from that. We're a post-Christian society. And so we're reluctant to talk about persecution of anybody, but particularly Christians in other countries. It's kind of like, oh, it's awkward. Let's not bother covering it. And so I don't think it gets the coverage. And we as Christians even aren't quite sure how to always engage in it. And I know we're coming on to more on that. So no. <laughs> and I was I was really aware of this. In the summer, the, the UK hosted a large uh, ministerial conference on freedom of religion or belief. It was a big deal. And yet the coverage of it was minuscule. Now, it did happen as is almost always the case at the moment in the UK, during a particularly tumultuous political time, uh, people were resigning from the government left, right and centre. And Liz Truss, she was the foreign secretary at the time, she addressed the conference. Uh, she then went on to become prime minister and then stopped being prime minister shortly after that. But so it did get swamped in the news. You can make excuses like that. So even ignoring all of that, it just didn't get the coverage. It, and it feels like it is hard to talk about a situation that affects millions and millions of people all around the world. And I just don't, I think partly because it's so persistent. And uh, yes, there were these, uh, when a particular story happens and a large number of people are killed uh, in particular atrocities, it might grab the headlines for a day or two, but it, it shrinks away very, very quickly afterwards. And I think that's the challenge. It's, it's helping to see how focus can be sustained when often the, the, the persecution happens over years and decades. And it just needs the persistence to try and keep attention on these issues. Well, I'm going to come to our guests who have been waiting so patiently in the background of this podcast. Anneli, if I can come to you first. Uh, firstly, tell, tell our listeners where you're coming from today. I am in Washington, D.C., in my basement. It's so good to have you with us. I know that in, well, firstly, your role as head of advocacy for CSW. Did I get that right? Joint head of advocacy, there's two of us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're obviously advocating for people who are suffering religious persecution all the time. What's been your experience of trying to get those stories into mainstream media? We have an excellent press and public affairs team, which do an amazing job on that. But I think it is a, it's a challenge, not just in the UK, in the US as well, and around the world, especially, but I think especially in Europe and North America, where we have an increasingly secular society that's reflected in the media. That's not to say there are not journalists who are Christians. There are some, and I know them personally, and they're wonderful and doing a great job. But by and large, the majority of people in the, in the, in the media sphere are either nominally or not particularly religious. And so approaching a, a religious freedom issue for them can be kind of fraught with tensions and, and fears about it being controversial. We know the media likes some kinds of controversies. Prince Harry and the royal family is a very safe controversy. But what's happening in Nigeria with Christians and Muslims <laughs> is not a safe controversy. And what's happening in India with Hindu nationalists and Muslims and Christians is not safe because it has this ability or potential to stir emotions and, and the kind of controversy a lot of editors shy away from. And so I think that's a big part of it, of individual people in the media not really understanding religion from a personal point of view, but then also people who are making decisions on what runs or doesn't run, taking into these account these different factors of potential for blowback or, or backlash. That's such an interesting point because definitely we see in the media that news stories are reported to with emotional intent to have an emotional reaction from the reader what what do you think it is about these religious persecution stories that the media is scared of i think there's various things we, we've seen some kind of horrific things happen in the past looking at the charlie hebdo situation in in france a number of years ago um, mm. i think that is part of it of not wanting to offend certain sectors because there there's actual physical danger involved with that I think especially, I think Danny already alluded to this a bit, but in countries with a, um, 
heavy Christian, but also colonialist past, anytime you're speaking about a, an issue in another country where Christians are the victims, I think that that comes with a bit of a loaded history. And so again, I think that people making decisions about what runs or doesn't run are also taking that into account and, and not wanting to be seen as biased or, or linking themselves with that, that past, which may have other baggage with that. Mm. We're also joined by Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hi there, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you loud and clear. You're joining us from part of the world where it's even earlier. So thanks so much for being with us. Why do you think it matters to try and get stories of religious persecution into mainstream media? Well, I think that, as you were saying here already in the program, that every person is important and they were made in the image of God. So they have dignity and they are all valuable. And all these women that I met, when you hear their stories, you can tell that this is not just a political problem or an easy thing that we can just, you know, live with. But it is a complicated situation for families, for children, for women uh, that are suffering the consequences of bad decisions that people are taking just because they don't understand that we are all free to believe. Mm. Thanks. I'm going to get into asking both of you much more but there is such a thing as having too many chefs so peter linus i'm afraid this is your key to leave you're going to go on to much to other important tasks <laughs> about in your day what what what's what's next on the agenda for you peter I'm preparing for more media things tomorrow a news review which i which i love but i'm sorry to miss this conversation but we did conclude yes too many people trying to do an interview is not going to work so i got i got fired Bye, Peter. Well, as he said, he's going to miss being involved in this conversation. But what a, what a seamless transition to remind you to subscribe to this podcast, to share it with your friends so that they don't miss out on this conversation. You can follow all that we're up to on um, EA UK News on Twitter, or Evangelical Alliance on Instagram, and you can email in cross.section at eauk.org. And let us know what stories you want us to be hearing about. So back to you, Sarah. I know that this is a time where we're going to hear some of the stories about what CSW has been working on recently. Could you share with us the work that has been going on in Mexico? Yes, of course. And you're going to hear from my Mexican accent. <laughs> uh, some of the context of the story. <laughs> Uh, in indigenous communities, local leaders have pressured families to return to the majority religion, which is Catholicism, by removing their access to basic services like water, electricity, sewage, and by blocking their access to government, government benefits uh, that provide essential financial support for these families. And I will share, you, I'll share to you on Angelina. How does it sound? Angelina, she's a 52-year-old woman from La Mesa Lima Reyes. That's a long name, I know. But if you can remember Hidalgo, Hidalgo, which is a state <laughs> of Mexico City. Well, her story, in 2019, the local authorities threatened Angelina's family with forced displacement, sorry, and the confiscation of her property from the 11 Protestant Christian families in her village, eight returned to the majority religion for fear. Uh, her sister, Maria Francisca, and uh, their respected husbands refused to do so. So in 2019, Angelina suffered a uterine prolapse when she tried to carry a 20 liter water bucket mm. from the river to her house on her own due to the risk of uh, recurrence. The doctors mm. recommend surgery. And on July 22, 2019, she underwent to a hysterectomy. I'm sorry, I cannot say that very well. Hysterectomy. And her sister, Maria Francisca. You did as well as any of us would have done. So good. Yeah. And her sister, Maria Francisca, well, was also in serious condition because of the effort of carrying water and she had a surgery on December uh, 16th in 2019 to remove a lump under her arm and an inguinal hernia. 
uh, a week after the operation. And please imagine yourself being uh, being on surgery and a week later with mm. an open wound. Uh, they were called for a meeting in, in the middle of the, this little town where they live. And there they were threatened and the authority said in, in January 15, 2020, that they, that they will impose uh, a fine of 58,000 pesos, which is probably similar to, let's say, $3,000 on his family uh, as part of an illegal agreement that will restore access to basic services in exchange to stop their religious services. These sisters were under stress mm. and they couldn't visit each other. The local authorities also threatened to cut their services of whoever would come to visit them or bring water to their house, of course. And so could you imagine how they feel, not just uh, being ill and not, not able to communicate with their family or friends or anyone, or usually in these communities, they cannot be visited mm. by correligionary people, people from their church, like pastor cannot go to their house because they are not supposed to come into the community just because they are not part of the majority religion. Now, let's understand that uh, this Catholicism that is practiced in these communities is not like the Catholicism that we know in the States or in the UK, but it's a mixture of indigenous mm -hmm. culture. And so we call that syncretism because it's, let's say, yeah, it's just a, a big mix of what they used to celebrate and what they used to practice. And then when Catholicism came, they mix it all. And that's what they had as a religion. Wow. Sarah, how have, how have people responded to these pressures uh, and to this persecution that they faced? What, has, what have uh, uh, believers done in response to this? Oh, well, I, will, I think I can read a bit of what Angelina said to us when we interviewed her, because they don't feel that they can go somewhere uh, to to be listened and that you know the the Mexican government will send the police or someone to support them so when when I interview her and I ask her if she was afraid of going outside of her house she said we were very stressed and we were really scared we thought that at any moment the house that we built with great sacrifice and our coffee plants and the cedar branches that we planted to become trees would be taken from us, that, that we would not enjoy any of these. And that's why we cried. We only knew that they were not going to be able to take away our faith in our God. And they, couldn't, they could take everything else. So what, what they feel is like they're so exposed for anything that the majority uh, religion people will come up with however they feel any day anytime they can just come and attack them or just send them send them away uh, from the community so it's really stressful to live like that and that's why we need mm. to advocate for me mm. we we often talk on this podcast you know it often comes up some of the struggles that christians might face here in the uk and it really does put it in such sharp perspective hearing about what these women have been through in Mexico and just thinking about what she said there of, you know, they can take everything else. They can't take their relationship with God. They can't take their faith. It would be so easy to kind of romanticize what that, that sounds like, you know, the persecuted Christian. Oh, but I've still got my faith. And it's so it's both so powerful to me that she's able to say that whilst also hitting home the painful reality of, of having the possibility of literally everything else taken away from you. You know, it's so wonderful to have that solid hope in the Lord, but there is, there is real actual pain in losing everything else. Um, wow, I find that so powerful. Just help us understand why, what, 
why are they being persecuted? That sounds such that's such a basic question. But what what are the authorities afraid of or their communities? What are they afraid of in having Christians, Protestant Christians in their communities? Mm-hmm. Well, I will say, uh, let's imagine that for more than 150 years, they have been living the same way and they have been practicing all together same traditions everyone there and in most cases some forms of discrimination come from the decision to leave the majority religion so as soon as the local authorities realize that they are not going to collaborate and the festivity of the saint or that they are not willing to clean anymore the church or wash out the curtains or bring flowers to the church or however they were serving or they were used to see them serving there then these uh, in the community's religious uniformity is often seen as an essential as uh, yeah essential cohesion so uh, it's like we are we are one thing and so opting out of duties and practices associated mm-hmm. with the majority religious is uh, unacceptable as it often meet with mm. punishment so you are not willing to do what we expect from you we all have this order here and you are not willing to be part of that anymore so we're gonna punish you and we're gonna bring all the community to to decide what to do with you because you are being a problem and uh, worst of all if you go to the Mexican news, you read exactly that version that they are being a problem where they wow. So you see, they are not free to choose what they want to believe or if they want to stop believing on whatever they are celebrating. That's causing the problems. Uh, and then the, the government will come and reinforce these actions by giving the, the fines that were put in over the Christians to the local authorities and say, eh, that's okay, we will pay the fine, please let them live here or continue to you know, work the land or whatever they were stopped. And, and that's not a solution because it's just letting the, the people mm. know that they can have money for doing things like that to minorities, to, to Christians, to Jehovah testifies, to Adventists or yeah, sorry, Jehovah Witnesses is the way you say it in English, right? So it, it mm, is... Yes, yeah, yeah. This problem of not training the local authorities or not uh, teaching that we are free to believe that if someone wants to stop being part of the traditions, they are in their right to do that. Wow. And, and, and last question to you, Sarah, if I can what what hope is there what can be done for these women in mexico yeah well one thing that i remember when i started visiting visiting the areas of chiapas and listening to their stories was that the local authorities often think that because no one knows what's happening and no one cares so they can do whatever they they want but as soon as these stories become known mm. and the government hear that people from another part of the world is sending letters or, you know, doing a, a press release on what's happening inside my country, that, that let them feel like the pressure of, you know, there's eyes over you and we know what's happening there. So the more mm. we, we bring these stories to the light and, and the more work we do, um, on the UN or places like that, we can let them know that we care, that we are seeing, that that we are with them in a way. And we can for sure pray because it's not just a problem that we can uh, bring a solution with politics or, or things like that. But it's also a spiritual battle for them and, and our prayer is very important. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much, Sarah. We're going to link the stories that you've shared again in the in the podcast description today so that people can can read about those women and remember their names and their stories. Yeah. 
Actually, in fact, could you say could you say the two the two women that you refer to? Could you say their names one more time for us? Yes, of course, is Angelina and her sister Maria Francisca. Those are the names, and but you will you will hear more than twenty stories of amazing women and their how brave they are and how clear it is for them that they are doing the right thing. By, by resisting and continuing to believe mm. their way. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Also, just in case anyone was wondering, I think Sarah was slightly battling with a dog in the background, but but she won. She was she was successful there. I'm now going to come to Annalie, and you're going to share with us some of some stories that have come out of Cuba. Yes, so Cuba is quite a different situation compared to Mexico. Cuba has, as I'm sure many listeners know, has been ruled by a communist government since 1959. And that was under the two Castro brothers, Fidel and Raul Castro, for the majority of that. In the last couple of years, there's a transition over to a new president who's not a Castro, but who is a member of the Communist Party and has kind of made it very clear that Cuba has no intention, or the government has no intention of reforming or making any changes. When it comes to religion, it can be compared to a country like China or Vietnam, not so much in terms of severity, but in terms of how the government views religion, that it's something that's potentially dangerous. I think in Cuba, the government realized very quickly that it was a pretty religious population and they couldn't eradicate religion, but they could try to control it as much as possible. And so that's been the approach ever since 59, of kind of allowing space for it here and there, but controlling it, clamping down and really targeting as leaders who are seen to be problematic in any way. And that's very subjective, obviously, in how the government views that. Last July in 2021, there were, for the first time in Cuba's uh, history, post-communist or during communism history, massive, uh, spontaneous, peaceful protests across the island. There are lots of reasons for that, mainly due to the economic situation coming out of COVID and just real hardship on the, in the country. But as these protests took off across the island and just towns and villages and cities across the island, people began to also make uh, vocal calls for change, political change, and, and make calls for freedom. And they were chanting a slogan that uh, took the Communist Party, it's a Communist Party slogan, which is Homeland or Death, and some uh, hip hop group wow. on the song, changing that and saying Homeland or Life, or Homeland and Life, sorry, not Homeland or Death, but Homeland and Life. And that became the kind of motto of, the, of these protests. And when these protests happened, lots of people went out of all types, ages, races, backgrounds. And in those groups were many religious leaders, pastors uh, who saw what was happening and, and wanted to join those calls for change. And one of those pastors was a nam, man named Lorenzo Rosales. He's a pastor of a church in the eastern part mm -hmm. of the country, which historically has been the more hard line in terms of uh, communist um, oppression. But he also had a history you know, 10 years previous to this of, of discrimination and persecution by the government, because he initially in the early 2000s, as part of his pastoral work, he was visiting families of political prisoners, which the government does not allow at all, does not tolerate. So he's targeted for that. He then was leading an independent church, so a church that's not officially recognized by the government, which is another kind of count against him. And the same, the same state security agent, which is like the Cuban internal intelligence, like kind of like the East German Stasi was, but in, in, in Cuba, the same agent who was responsible for shutting down his church in, in 2012 and confiscating his home is now in a position of authority and is the person we believe was responsible for deciding in these protests. He was arrested. There's, there's photos of him in a kind of chokehold with these paramilitary guys holding him. He was imprisoned. He was mm -hmm. uh, subjected to horrific treatment in prison and then in, in eventually given a seven and a half year prison sentence. And the same agent oversaw that process. So you see this kind of more than a decade-long history of persecution, the government seeing an opportunity to take somebody out and remove them and make an example of them. And so he's now, he's still in prison. He just celebrated his second birthday in prison last week. He has two children, one of whom was arrested at the same time as him and was disappeared for a week, but was later released. And a, a, I think she's 13-year-old daughter now. She's 12 and he was arrested. Who have been living mm. without their dad now for, for over a year. Anna Lee, how, how does the kind of interplay between the political dissidents and the religious freedom play out? Does it, does it make it more challenging to speak up for, for freedom of religion and belief in this context? It's, it's really interesting because the government, Cuban government is, has been very smart. They're, they're very aware of the power that faith can be 
in a population. I think they they really saw what happened in Eastern Europe and countries like Poland mm -hmm. and others and Romania and took note of that. And they have they've gone to great effort for decades now to try and separate anyone who's viewed as a political, political dissident from communities of faith. And so one thing that's happened consistently over the years is if if somebody is in a church and they become a political dissident or they're seen as an activist or a political dissident joins a church, oftentimes the priest or the pastor is approached by state security told you eject that person from your congregation or we'll shut your church down. And for years, many pastors and priests kind of weighed up those two things of do I take this one person out or do I have all, you know, my entire church, all these people who come here closed. Um, and it's a almost impossible decision to make. And I, I don't absolutely judge anyone for making it. Many, many church leaders decided to mm -hmm. ask the person to leave because it was the only option that they saw as viable. And so that's part of a plot policy of social isolation. But many of those people, many of those dissidents and activists do, not all of them, but many of them are people of faith, Catholics and Protestants, and that plays a very important role in what they believe. And what we've seen, which is really interesting since July 2021 and these protests where hundreds of people were arrested and imprisoned along with the pastor that I mentioned, is many more priests and pastors just saying no to the government, that we're not going to stop visiting families of political prisoners. We're not going to stop praying for them. We had one pastor in central Cuba um, who is also leads an unregistered church who tried to put on a, a prayer event last spring for Pastor Lorenzo's family and also for other kinds of political prisoners. And not just he, but elders in his church, Sunday school teachers were approached by state security and threatened and warned of all kinds of consequences that they went ahead with it. He ended up postponing it, not canceling it, because he's like, the government's not going to cancel my prayer. But um, but the pressure was so intense that, that, that they had to postpone it. But it's just, it's interesting to me because it, it shows that the government fears that coming together of, of people who are calling out for justice and freedom mm -hmm. with faith. And they also fear the power of prayer. They would go to such lengths to shut down a prayer event. And I think uh, you mentioned the the history of what happened in Poland, uh, the solidarity movement, the way prayer was at the absolute centre of so much of the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. I was, I was talking to someone who's involved in leading the Evangelical Alliance in Albania a few weeks ago. And he said that in 1991, when the communist regime fell, they reckoned there were 13 evangelical Christians in the country. And those were people who had been Christians prior uh, to the communist regime. There are now more than 500 evangelical churches in the country. And, I, and he was speaking about the persistence of families that literally met in secret because they could not talk to anyone about their faith through that. And actually the persistence of their faith through that period. And I think hearing stories of people who, whose faith motivates them to not only speak up for their own freedom of their religious belief, but actually against unjust regimes. Well, to hear those stories worldwide is inspiring, but to hear them happening in Cuba now is inspiring too. Yeah, they really are. And I think with Pastor Lorenzo, going back to him, He's been particularly inspiring because he's in a maximum security prison. He's been, as I mentioned, subjected to really horrific treatment, inhumane treatment, beatings. There was a story at the very beginning of a, a state security agent urinating on him as he was being beaten. Just really <sighs> awful treatment. He's been put intentionally in cells with violent criminals and the idea is to, that they can do whatever they want with impunity. But in the midst of that, he's actually decided that he's, this is the new platform God has given him. <laughs> and he said, I'm going to not have the quote exactly, but something like they cut my hair, they shaved my head, they changed my clothes, they put me in a new platform, but I'm going to continue to preach the King. And in the prison, he's been preaching and reaching out and, and, and converting other prisoners, men who had, he's described as having no hope, men who have, you know, lived really sad and, and kind of hopeless lives are finding Christ in these prisons. And they've written letters, you know, saying thank you to his family saying, we know, you know, we know you don't want him here with us, but we're grateful that he is because he's given us, us life. Oh, it's so amazing. There, there's, again, there's a report on the CSW website going over the story of Pastor Lorenzo, which we will put in the episode description today. I also want to read a quote from, it's, a, it's a quote from, from that report from one of the prisoners that you were referring to, Annie, and it says this, I want to thank our Lord for putting Pastor Lorenzo Rosales on our path because he has been a blessing for us. He has been the instrument that the Lord chose for the truth to come into our lives so that many could come out of darkness into the light. It's just, you know, what I keep thinking you said about how the Cuban government are fearful of the power of prayer. 
and it's a it's a strange one because they absolutely should be because look how powerful even in these terrible circumstances how powerfully god is moving through past lorenzo and others absolutely it's it's you know they would never admit that they you know in their view it's all it's all made up fairy tales but but when you look at what their behavior the fear they show of religious leaders the fear they show people like Pastor Lorenzo or Pastor Travieso, who's the pastor who organizes prayer event and other religious leaders, that fear just shows that they, deep down, they do believe, which is ironic, um, but but that they wouldn't be afraid if they didn't think there was something powerful there. And another thing I wanted to ask, in the report, it says, so he got this seven-year seven sentence, which was, as you covered, completely unjust. And it says in the report that you broke the news to his wife. Can I ask what that was like? It was one of the more awful things I've had to do in 20 years at CSW. Uh, the, the way it took place was, was a little strange. He was arrested in July. He was transferred to maximum security prison in August. He was put on trial in December along with a number of other prisoners. They put them all, all the people who were arrested in the same town were put on trial together. He wasn't allowed to testify in his own defense. He wasn't allowed to bring witnesses in his own defense. It was very much a you know, summary, um, pre-decided trial. But then there was nothing, there was no information after that. They just went silent. He was still in prison, but there was no information on the sentence or, or yeah, on the sentence. And uh, in the meantime, in November, we, along with our UN officer, had prepared a submission to a number of UN special procedures. So the Rapporteur on freedom, religion, or belief, but also a number of other different procedures on torture and other types of things. And five of them, if I remember correctly, wrote a formal letter to the Cuban government about this case and, and asking for information in response to, to questions about it. Cuba had a, a deadline to respond to that. They didn't respond within the deadline, which was interesting in itself that they kind of just ignored it at the beginning. But in April, they did finally publish a response. And it was in that response, which was, again, full of all kinds of lies and things about justifying their, their arrest mm. and sentencing of Pastor Lorenzo. But it mentioned kind of almost in passing in that report, in that letter, that he'd been sentenced to eight years. And that had, as I said, had not been communicated to his family, had not been communicated to him, to his lawyer, to no one. And so we saw this and we were like, we had to tell his family, obviously, because this is the response. But it was it was awful. It, yeah, we communicate via WhatsApp and Signal. So mm -hmm. I, I sent her the response because she wanted to see it, but I had to say, you know, in this response, it says this, this is what the sentence is. And she was understandably distraught and upset. And she then had to go tell him because he didn't know either. Uh, a few weeks later, they announced a seven-year sentence. So it was like a slight reduction. We don't quite know why that was, but but it just it just showed the kind of coldness and the uncaring of the Cuban government. They couldn't even be bothered to tell mm -hmm. And they convicted and sentenced what his sentence was or his family i that's i find that very moving thank you so much for sharing that story with us i just want to ask you one more question before we close up this episode today jesus talked about we we see in the word that jesus says you know to expect persecution and so what, what would you want to say to people listening to this podcast or just Christians who might think almost that religious persecution, the persecution of Christians, isn't really something we should resist or advocate against because it's what Jesus warned us of? Yeah, what would you say is the reason why it's so important to have people advocate, to have people yeah, speak on behalf of others, as Sarah said earlier, to, to write letters, to say that people care about them. What, what would you say? The Bible also tells us that when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And it tells us to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And again and again in the Bible, it commands us to, to call out for justice and to, to not let injustice go, go unnoticed or unspoken of. And so I think you have to weigh up what Jesus says about persecution, that yes, we should expect that it's going to happen. But he doesn't say don't resist it. He doesn't say don't you know ignore your brothers and sisters who are suffering because this is just something that's going to happen. I also think that I've met a number of people through my work at CSW who have said, who have noted that the persecution almost never affects somebody in isolation. So in the case of Pastor Lorenzo, yes, he maybe he himself, if you had asked him, would say yes, I'd be willing to go to prison for my faith. But what about the impact on his children? What about the impact on his wife? Um, 
what about, uh, you know, uh, there were, we, had, we had pastors in, in Colombia years ago who were under threat of death, who, when they resisted, the, the guerrillas came back and said, well, we're not going to kill you, we're going to kill your children. So it's a whole different, it's, it's not something that, it's not simple, it's not easy and cut and dry, like, yes, I'm willing to do something and, and die, or I'm willing to go to prison. It has a knock-on effect, it has a larger impact, and I've never met anyone who said, don't pray for us, ever. And I've mm. been to China, I've been to the border of North Korea, I've been to Vietnam, I've been to Cuba, I've been to Mexico, to Colombia. Um, never. I've always had people say, number one, thank you for coming to see us, physically see us, letting us know we're not alone, because that's often one of the biggest, the biggest struggles for people who are experiencing persecution is feeling alone and feeling isolated. And that's often very intentional by the persecutors, but letting them know they're not alone and then uh, in terms of action, it, it depends on, on the situation. It depends on um, the, the context, what might be effective, what might not be effective. In some, in some cases, it is more dangerous to do something public. You, you may be putting someone or community in further danger by doing that. But in other cases, it's something that can have an impact, like what Sarah mentioned about in Mexico, these women, government reacting when they see things in the press or they see things being spoken about. Um, at CSW, we have a principle that we don't do things unless we have the permission of the people who are impacted and involved. And if they ask us not to do something and say, you know, just pray, then that we respect that and we'll do that. But if they ask us to take action, if they ask us to be writing letters or they ask us to be being their voice in the international arena where they cannot, I think as Christians, we have an obligation to, to do as much as we can and to stand with them and to, mm -hmm. to walk with them we can never understand their pain. We can never fully experience what they're experiencing, but to walk with them as they're in that situation as much as we can and offer that, that unity. And I always, I always go back to what Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, but because it's those words before he went to the cross are, are so powerful to me, but what he prayed for was unity. He asked "May this church be one, may yeah. it be one as you and I, and the, you, the father and I are one. And I think as Christians in this world, that that's what we're aspiring to be. Anne, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. It's been amazing to talk to you both. Danny, thank you. Peter already got his thanks. Chris Ringland, who does all our post-production, thank you to him. And I'll just say one more time, the International Day of Prayer webinar, which is being hosted by uh, the Evangelical Alliance, Open Doors, CSW and Release International, that's happening on Sunday, this Sunday, the 6th of November at half seven. Do join. Thank you so much for listening to this very special episode of Cross Section. Cross Section. Conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello, I'm Chris Ringland and I work as part of the Scotland team. Yes, I'm the same Chris that gets mentioned at the end of our episodes for putting the podcast together. Thanks for listening to Cross Section. We hope you really enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform, share the episode on social media and tell your friends and family so that they can enjoy it too. Thanks for listening and have a great week.